So my name is Rich Procida. I'm an attorney, author, and activist. I've published one book and a number of articles. I've founded the Truth and Democracy Coalition, and I produce two podcasts, Democracy Under Fire and Bible Study for Progressives. The Truth and Democracy Coalition works with other organizations to build a pro-democracy movement in America. And I founded the Truth and Democracy Coalition, and part of this project includes reaching out to moderates and addressing controversial issues in a way that brings people together rather than pushing them apart. So Professor Mitchell and I come from different political perspectives. And on here, you're not going to hear opinions that you already agree with or hear opinions that are going to push you further to the extreme than, than we already are. And you won't be told what to think and believe. And you won't get kicked out for having your own opinion. We listen to views that challenge us so that we can understand other perspectives. And this helps us have a more balanced view and be more well-rounded politically. It helps us to understand the other side rather than just stereotyping them or profiling them. And by listening to those with different point viewpoints, we hope to overcome that division that is tearing our country apart and undermining our democracy. So Yoram Hazoni, and I probably should have asked how to promote promote that, right? That's it. You're on. Okay, good, good. Um, said of Joshua Mitchell's new book, American Awakening, Identity of Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time, that reconciliation with the descendants of American slaves must be at the heart of this nation's political agenda. And at the heart of this affliction is the deep-seated racism and bigotry that so easily is harnessed to divide us. And this racial divide, as I said, is driving the assault on democracy in America. So Joshua Mitchell is a professor of political theory at Georgetown University. He's published five books and numerous articles. His academic research focuses on Western political philosophy, and he writes about identity politics and democracy. He was once a leftist himself. Professor Mitchell is now critical of the hyper-identity politics we see today. So I'd like to turn it over to Professor Mitchell for his opening remarks, and then we'll go have the questions, and then we'll follow that with questions and comments from you. So thank you, Professor Mitchell, for coming, and go ahead. Thank you, Rich. By the way, everybody, please call me Josh. Um, I, I do teach political theory at Georgetown, but I'm disappointed with academics as a whole because it seems to me our major uh, purpose has really been lost. We're involved in these inbred discussions. And my view is if, if you spend many years thinking about important ideas, you ought to be able to say something about American life. And while I have written a lot of books. I'm also very much a practitioner. In 2005, I went to the Middle East and I helped start a university in Qatar. And then I left that for two years and went up and was the head of the American University of Iraq in Kurdistan. Um, Rich is right. I, I grew up in Ann Arbor. I did come out of the old left. Um, I am now a registered independent. Most of my conversations, though, here in Washington are center right-ish. And, uh, and what I mean by that is uh, there's a new group of 
largely conservatives and moderates forming that are very upset with what happened in the Republican Party from the 1980s on. And by that, I mean the, the whole idea that free markets are the only thing we should care about. Well, that has led, I think, to the gutting of the middle class, and, and that's got to be fixed. And then the other piece that the Republicans, I think I got quite wrong, was um, neoconservatism and endless wars in the deserts and high mountains of the Middle East. I mean, I went to Iraq in part because I felt quite bad about what had happened and I knew I could help build an educational institution in Kurdistan. So I did, I took tears out of my life. Um, If I I were to have to say um, the three big problems with the right, I'm gonna be balanced here. I'm gonna try, try to tell you what I think are the problems of the right and the left. Um, the first one, and Rich indicated this in his opening remarks, is Republicans and people on the right are, they don't know how to talk about race. Uh, I don't, I'm sure some of them are racist, but all the ones I uh, talk to are, are, are not. But the problem, and I keep telling them this, is that they say, well, look, we live in a colorblind society and that's it. And my view is, no, that's not right. In this sense, I'm very much like I was in the 1960s in the old left. And and what I mean by that is that I believe then and believe now that there are three things that we need to focus on. Uh, We need to fix, make sure that people who are in the middle class can stay there and people who are poor can join the middle class. Uh, We need to have serious and responsible uh, work done on the race question, as it were, in America, that we can't ignore it. We can't just say, well, look, everybody has a fair chance. Everything's fine. I don't think that's right. And then I think uh, the third thing that I believe then and believe now is that we really should not have endless wars abroad. This is a very, very bad idea. Um, that money can be better spent on our own people here at home. Um, so the other, the other problem that's, that I think we have on the right, it's not certainly not with the group that I'm talking to in America, though I have talked to groups in Europe when I go over there and teach, um, it's, it's the alt-right. This is, a, I think, a very, very serious problem. And I think it's actually deeper than Richard Spencer. Um, I think the real, excuse me, the real meaning of the alt-right is that, uh, and it was developed really in the 1880s, this is not recent. Um, It's the idea that there's really only two categories you should be thinking in terms of strength and weakness. And that's what Nietzsche, the great defender of the alt-right proposed. And, And what he was saying was he wanted to get rid of the Christian categories. And he'll ask me, well, what are those? Well, I mean, think about uh, the term that identity politics uh, is fixated on. Um, It's the category of the innocent victim. And and this category is a deeply Christian category. We have to be very clear on this. It's in the Old Testament too, but Christ is the the one innocent victim. And and what I, my general theory about identity politics is that it's a kind of derivation of Christianity. Uh, and, And in that sense, it's, both a good thing, but I think ultimately a a deeply, deeply destructive thing. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. Um, So uh, just quickly, what I think the left gets right, gets correct, is that justice is the central question. There's no question about that. And I think the right doesn't understand that. The right has been fixed on free markets uh, and, and tradition. If you're a cultural conservative, there's my cat in the background. Uh, but, but I think the left has been focused on some deeper understanding of justice, which I do think comes out of Christianity. And, and I'm not critical of that part. I think justice really is the great question we have to be thinking about. But I'm troubled by the way 
identity politics um, works this through. Um, very quickly, the book that I wrote was really about three things, and maybe we can talk about all of them at some point. One is identity politics, which is, I think, the issue of the day. But another one is bipolarity uh, or manic depression. Um, <clears throat> I think this is one of the great problems of our time, and I think it's deeper than a medical crisis. And if you want, we can talk about that. And then I think addiction also is a huge issue. And I talk about all three of these things. And I don't talk about them in a medical way. I talk about them in a philosophical way. Um, addiction is more than just opioid addic addiction. It's Facebook, it's all sorts of things. And I think even if we were to solve the identity politics problem, uh, I think we would still have these huge issues. And, and while I do believe identity politics is largely a left phenomenon, these other two things, bipolarity and an addiction, these affect all of us, they're nonpartisan. And so uh, it's something I think no political party can capitalize on. Um, so let me just say something about where I think identity politics is the problem. So people talk about CRT uh, and uh, wokeness and uh, all, all the terms that the right uses, for example. And my view is we really have to think about this in a much larger way. And the term that is used by the left and the right, but I think it's the term we should really be focusing on is, is identity politics. And the term identity is, is one that I'm old enough to remember wasn't even in existence 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, it might've been technically in existence for philosophers and things like that, but in terms of everyday life, nobody used the term. And in the last 10 or 15 years, what's happened is that everybody uh, seems to think they have to have an identity. It used to be, we could say, well, I'm an American, and now we say my, Amer my identity is American. Uh, so that's interesting. And if you mean by identity um, kind, like my kind is American or my kind is Lebanese in my case for half Lebanese, um, I'm, I'm not troubled by that usage at all. But I think identity um, is used in a different way. And that's the way I'm very troubled by. Um, for one, it's, it's a relationship. It's the relationship between a claim of innocence and groups that are seen as not innocent, the, the, what I call the prime transgressor. And my view of this is this is a very, very dangerous way to do politics. I will be first to agree with you that race is a huge issue in America. I'm just not clear at all that by, use, by talking about identity politics, we get to the problem. Um, for one, uh, I'm enough of a Christian to believe that it's impossible for any one of us to say I am completely innocent. And as I said to you, the, the category that's central to identity politics is the innocent victim. And I am, again, I'd be the first to agree with you that, that there are many historical wrongs that have occurred and we have to think deeply about how we can redress them. But it's not clear to me that by, uh, by declaring that one group is innocent and the other group are transgressors. And in this case, you know, for the moment, it's the white heterosexual male. I'm gonna pause right there and say, I have no interest whatsoever in racial politics. I think it's contemptible beneath us. It's not what the American project is all about. But, but I think what's happened is when you think of the white heterosexual male as, as it were the prime transgressor, then people line up around different identity categories. And then there's a huge battle about who gets more what I call innocence points. That's the first problem. And then the other problem is I, you know, I'm, I call myself a liberal who believes in pluralism. 
pluralism is a wonderful thing. We're a multi-ethnic, multi-racial country. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for a minute. My relatives uh, you know, have benefited from it over the last few hundred years. All sides of my family came very poor. And, and now we're, you know, we're modest, we're fine. We're a lot better off than we were in the Middle East in the case of my father's life, my father's family. But, but the problem with identity politics is it invokes the word diversity, but ironically, it makes a lot of people really quite invisible. So the idea is that white is one, black is one, women is one. There are all these univocal categories that are supposed to exist. And the problem when you do that is, if, say, if you're, say if you're a conservative woman, um, you're kind of invisible because woman is supposed to be this. Or especially uh, if you're if you're black conservative, you, it's a difficult category to be. I mean, Bob Woodson, who I work with very closely, who in my view is a national treasure, he you know he'd sort of call himself a conservative. I think he's really see himself as a as a as a Christian. Um, who happens to be conservative, but Christian is really what he thinks of himself. But he's largely invisible uh, to CNN and MSNBC and the, and the folks on the left who are thinking in terms of identity politics. So the diversity, which is supposed to be bringing, making visible the innocent victims, it ends up ruling out whole groups of people. So conservative Hispanics, for example, or conservative Asians, They're, they just don't have a voice. Uh, you know, the, whatever you might think of him, Clarence Thomas is is not considered to be a representative of Black America. Well, this is very strange. I think it's very hurtful because true pluralism would be an arrangement in which we recognize that we have different identities, but we could say, look, to be Black doesn't mean you have to be left. Uh, to be a woman doesn't mean you have to be a feminist. You can be a feminist, but it doesn't mean that you have to be a feminist. And I think the problem with identity politics is it pushes people into very distinct categories and makes it impossible for you to stand outside of those categories. I think this is a real problem. Um, a couple other things. I think part of the reason why identity politics has emerged is because of the collapse of the churches um, in the 60s and 70s. Some of you who are old enough, uh, older, as old as me, 67, um, we'll remember this. I mean, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, what are called the mainline churches, the Protestant churches went very soft. And I think the Roman Catholic churches went soft too. And by that, I mean, they lost sight of their, their original deep theological insight, which is that man is stained, that all of us are stained. And you can say uh, you know, original sin. I think that's actually the best way to think about this. Uh, I'll translate that. We're all irredeemable and deplorable. That's the idea of original sin. And you'll note I'm using these terms that show up in identity politics. And I think what happened was where the churches turned toward love, um, they lost sight of God's judgment and human sinfulness, but it didn't disappear. And some of you have heard of the Pew Charitable Trust Poll, which suggests that most Americans now are nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They have no religious affiliation. And my response to that is, of course, young people and older people aren't going to church anymore because what we're all looking for is to figure out our purity and stain. And I think this is what's consumed America right now, looking for purity and stain. And uh, whether it's clean energy versus dirty fossil fuels, are borders clean or dirty? I mean, these are, these are huge issues, but I think they're all loaded with this idea of purity and stain. And uh, 
So my argument is that the idea of purity and stain may have left the churches, but it's now out in politics in the form of identity politics, where certain people are pure and stained. We call certain people irredeemably stained. And I think that I'll, I'll end with this thought, and we can, and I'm sure Rich has questions, and so do you all. And I'm really delighted that we're talking about these things. So the Christian understanding is that the relationship between um, purity and stain is a vertical one. So we're all stained, and there's one innocent victim, Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. And what I'm suggesting is that identity politics is a deep deformation of this fundamental Christian insight, except that now, instead of looking upward and seeing innocence up here and us stained, we've inverted it, we've made it horizontal, so that some people are pure and, and other people are stained. And we've set up a whole moral economy. And we think we can build a world on this. And I don't think we can. I think we have to recognize that all of us have some faults, that there's a legacy of slavery. I do not believe that collective guilt will do anything to solve this problem or reparations. Uh, happy to talk with you about what I think can work. And I, I believe it can work and I believe it will take many generations, but historic wounds take a long time to heal. And I think we should all put our minds to it and stop doing as so many of my students are doing at Georgetown and everywhere I go, they're desperately trying to show that that they're on the side of Black Lives Matter, that they're, in, they're on the side of the innocent victims, but then they go home and they sit at home or they post on Facebook and that's the end of their action. And I think that's the tragedy is that identity politics allows for a great deal of moral posturing and very little work. And we have to put our hands to the problem and do work. I'll stop with that, Rich. I'm sure you've got lots of questions. Yeah, thank you very much. Hey, you know, my view has been that politics and religion are basically the same thing. I mean, religion was the first form of politics and we really sort of created religion in the, in the enlightenment and, and so forth, created a new category. Before that, it was just politics. Everybody believed there were gods. Kings were sons of gods. Uh, and when we look at scripture and we read that Jesus was the son of God, I, I read it in that context. And so I've written actually articles, one religion is politics and the other politics is religion. So I think religion has always been political. It's political now, it's gonna be political into the foreseeable future. Um, and when we separated the church and the state, we never really separated religion and politics. So you criticize sort of identity policy as being a sort of religious activity when the church has been highly political already, uh, particularly on social issues, the, the whole time, for the whole time. So how do you... Okay, that's a great question. So there's a huge debate um, uh, about whether America is liberal, by which most people mean secular. I mean, historically, that's what it meant, or, or religious. And I think what's very interesting about American history, and it, and it touches on what you're saying, is that we tend to to have moments of great religious enthusiasm where politics and religion can't be separated. Probably the most recent one uh, that was really important was the civil rights movement. I mean, it's inconceivable to think, uh, to think about what happened in the 1960s without seeing this close connection between religion and politics. But there have been others. The uh, prohibition, the social justice, the social gospel movement of the 1880s, 
certainly the Civil War, just inconceivable. Um, and, but also the Revolutionary War. Nobody talks about this, but one of the slogans was no king, but King Jesus. So there are, what's interesting about America is it's kind of episodic. There are moments when it's completely intertwined. You can't separate them. And those are moments of profound crisis, which transform America. And then we have moments of, of what could be called a kind of liberal um, understanding. And so I think we're at another a moment where these things are connected. But here's where I see the danger. So, so I think we have to distinguish between um, this politics of innocence and transgression, which is what identity politics is, and what I call the politics of competence. And by that, I mean, um, and I don't think, by the way, Americans can survive with, without a fixation, first and foremost, on citizen competence. It means, uh, in, in the case of, of me, for example, that I have, if you look behind me, um, my wife and I are fixing up an old farmhouse, and it's been a very, very long haul. But I have, there's a mixed race uh, crew that I have that's doing all the work. And some, you know, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, stonemasons, some are black, some are white, some are Hispanic. And what's been so remarkable to see and really so beautiful to see is that these guys don't care about the color of their skin. They care whether the, the electricity is going in the right way whether the building is going to be straight, all these things. And I think we have to aim for a politics of competence. And my worry is that identity politics doesn't do that. In instead of us building a world together, which is what I think we're here to do. I look at my students, and I say, listen, I know you don't like that person. I don't care that you don't like that person. That is your neighbor. That is your fellow citizen. We have to all figure out how we can work with each other, notwithstanding our differences. And what's happened now is that our country has divided into two camps. One side doesn't want to talk to the other. And this to me represents the politics of innocence and transgression and we're completely paralyzed. And I think we have to return to the idea that we have to build a world together. But I don't think we can do this um, if we're trying to solve what I call the problem of the scapegoat horizontally. In other words, Everyone has a kind of cathartic rage. There's a, people have anger. They, they sense they have problems internally, and so they scapegoat other people. The fantastic insight of Christianity was that no matter how much you scapegoat out that other person, there's still a problem within you. And that was the pagan world, was scapegoating other people, salting their fields, raping children and, and mothers. It was horrible violence. And Christianity comes along and says, this problem that you feel inside, which we're going to call sin and stain, you can't be made pure by scapegoating another group. And my view is that's the secret of the West, is that on a good day, and we've never done this well, on a good day, we know that people who are different races, different genders, pick your favorite difference, you, you can't scapegoat them and solve your problem. Only a divine scapegoat from above can solve this problem. And my view is that when, when the churches begin to falter, you don't get rid of the scapegoat. You actually shift to a, to a mortal scapegoat. And I think that's what's happening right now. And I honestly don't think, you know, I, it's, I don't see how this works, but I don't see how we can fix this problem of scapegoating one another without a resurgent Christianity. And I say that with some awkwardness because I know there are people with different religions in America. I know this fully well, but what I am gonna say is that those who are Christians, I think have to recover this fundamental insight 
that you can't scapegoat other people. That's not going to solve the problem. There's a divine scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. And then when that happens, then I think we can build a world of competence. And I think that's what we're here to do. The idea of liberal competence, it's a little difficult to understand. It's a big part of your book. Can you, can you explain it a little more? So competence is a really beautiful and mysterious thing. You know, it's, it's not clear to me that there are books out there. So my stonemason is my age, black guy. And I sit in awe and I watch him and I say, Paul, show me what to do. And he says, you know, Mitchell, I can, I can show you, but there's an art here. And the most beautiful thing in America, and it's not just in America, is when you meet people with real competence. It's a beautiful thing. And I think, I don't think we can feel good about ourselves and good about the world we're building unless we all develop competences. And you can only do that in a, in a setting where you've got safe neighborhoods, families that are intact, all sorts of associations where, where people can meet one another. And, and I've seen enough of that in my life, enough real competence to think this is the most important thing we can do. And so I, I want to have a world where we're not looking at each other and saying, you're pure or I'm pure, you're stained. And then those of us who are, those of us who are pure or stained trying to figure out who's more stained and who's more pure. I don't think that's how we build a world. I think the only way we can do this is if we make it possible, invite people to develop competences. We, we have such a shortage of electricians, of plumbers, of carpenters who can build houses, of people who can work with their hands. And I think we have to return to that um, in, in order to build a world where we're making progress, where we can feel proud of what we're doing. Nothing more characterizes America right now than it's in a constant state of fear. People are looking over their shoulders. They're not concerned about developing these competences. They're concerned about whether they're pure or, or irredeemable. And I just think this is a terrible position to be in, but I think that's where we are. One of the things you rely on is, what do they call original sin, right? And that's Augustine's doctrine that came in the fourth century. And yeah. before that, I believe the view, and I'm citing, um, Elaine Pagels on this, that before that was the story meant God's granting of wisdom to live and liberty to humanity. And that's sort of why we have the snake on the medical symbols. It's a symbol of wisdom and knowledge. And, um, but I guess I'm going to come back to that later here. But well, can I make a quick comment on that? Actually? Sure, sure, sure. So, so that's the question here. So the Greek, the Greek, so Lane Pangles is a, a philosopher and she knows a lot about Greeks. Um, and she's right. The ancient world thought that the central problem is human wisdom. And if we can just get the right kind of knowledge, everything's going to be fine. The Christian insight is that you can know what you're supposed to do, but you're not going to do it. And, and so that's where Augustine comes in. He says, even if you've got, the right kind of knowledge, if, you're, if you really pay attention, we can know the right things and we're not going to do them. And that means there's some problem in our will, some sort of corruption in our will. And so human beings are these prideful creatures. And that's where the doctrine of original sin begins, emerges. It emerges out of the failure of, of the wisdom literature to account for the fact that all of us know what we should do, and we oftentimes won't do it. And so, yes, that's the doctrine of original sin. Absolutely. And you think, well, this is a terrible thing, but, but I remind everybody 
the, if you believe you have original sin, that means that if you're feeling some kind of stain, you can't blame it on someone else. You can't purge those black people, those white people, those women, those, you can't do that. I mean, it's a fantastic insight and we see it as a very dark insight, so to speak, but it's also a remarkable insight in terms of what it makes possible in the society, because it means you can have a multi-ethnic and multi-racial society. You can't just purge that group. And I say that as somebody who's lived in the Middle East for 15 years. The, the, the most remarkable thing about the Middle East is that one group is always out to purge another group. And part of my answer to this is that they don't have some idea that there's a problem so deep within them that they can't just purge another group. Only God can solve it. So I think that's part of the reason why the West with Christianity has developed pluralistic societies of the sort that nobody else has. And so that means as Christianity begins to falter, we lose the pluralistic society and we set one group against another, which is where I think we are now. Now, I guess uh, one of the questions is that there's a sense that there's this religious activity of scapegoating, <clears throat> but I'm not sure that that's a solely religious practice and, and this separation between religion and politics. It, in the city of God, so that Augustine's doctrine was sort of political in nature. He was responding to the rise of um, Christianity as the religion of the empire and creating space for the authority for the emperors, for Christians to be subjects of the emperor, whereas before that they were arguing that Christians were not subject to the rule of the emperor, they were only subject to the rule of Christ. And so, go ahead. Yeah, so I think Christianity has never solved this, and maybe it's absolutely unsolvable. So Augustine's city of God is set against the city of man. And, and so what he's recognizing is that we're not just one thing, we're both. And the, the West has tried to work out various ways of solving this problem right from the beginning, and none of them have been completely successful. So in the Middle Ages, you had the symbol of the eagle and the cross, right? Roman power and, and, uh, and, and the church. And these things were mixed in different sorts of ways. And, uh, and, and finally, the medieval synthesis was that the church was at top and, and politics was underneath that. I say that because there are Roman Catholics today, and some of these are friends of mine, I disagree with them, but who want to go back to that model. And then with the Reformation, what happened was people said, no, no, that's really dangerous. Let's try and separate these things but they never completely separated either. And we haven't either. And on a good day, I think we, we can more or less separate them. I don't want political questions to be theological questions, but then there are times of crisis like the civil rights movement. And I, I, I remember watching the Martin Luther King speech and it was so incredibly powerful because everyone knew his theological references. When he said, I might not get there with you, Everybody knew exactly what reference that was. It was Moses and the promised land. And so we had a political culture in the 1950s and 1960s, which had a deep theological understanding and had a sense that, that America, uh, America was like the wandering tribe of Egypt that still had a promise to be fulfilled. And Martin Luther King said this, the promissory note, right? We're still wandering through the desert and we're going to get to the new Israel. That's a very powerful trope that's been with America right from the Puritans. America as, as the new Israel, uh, is on a holy mission, 
moving from Babylonian or Egyptian captivity through the desert of the soul. I mean, this is the agony of America. We've always been that way. And, and I'm content with that. I mean, I think it's a, in some ways a beautiful thing. And, and the, the issue now that I think uh, is at the center of this movement from the, from the desert, the parched desert of the soul to, to the new Israel is the issue of race. I mean, that, in that sense, we're, we're in the desert. I think King was right. And here I think Obama overstepped it. I think Obama thought of himself as Joshua who had come to a, to a post-racial world. Uh, and I don't think we were. I think King was much more sober about this. And I think it's, it's going to be an agonizing few hundred years before we get there. But we all have to, we have to put our, our shoulders to this, no matter where, where we came from. My father's family came in the 1890s from Lebanon. Doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter that none of his family was here uh, during the period of slavery. It doesn't matter. I, I'm a citizen of America and everybody who comes here buys into our agony and has a responsibility, I think, to work toward fixing it. Yeah. I, you know, one of the, I think one of the differences we have is that your experience of religion is through the traditions and, of the church. And I turn to scripture and I ignore the theology of the church. Um, like the story of Adam and Eve is, in my mind, more similar to the story of where the hero loses his, the weed, the plant that gives him immortality. We don't really get to sin until we get to the story of Cain and Abel with the murder of his brother. And then I'm concerned about this because this is not just happening on the political front. They're bringing these ideologies into the church. And in so doing, they're sort of separating the religious devotion from political action. I think it's the same mistake the liberation theologians made by bringing in an outside non-Christian ideology in the church and sort of forcing Christians into personal salvation, into personal religious devotion that is apolitically. So are they really separating politics from personal religious devotion and what they're doing by bringing down, because you seem to have the view that they're sort of supplanting Christianity in a way. Identity politics is. Me. Yes, yes. Well, so I think, um, how should I put this? I mean, I, I, what, what I like about identity politics is its insistence that purity and stain are real categories. This is, conservatives can't talk about this. Conservatives can talk about free markets and they can talk about tradition. And, and I think part of the reason why conservatives don't have a real hold on the American imagination is I do think the American imagination is based on this problem, Martin Luther King said it, of, of stain and redemption. Look, the first Americans on the shore were the Puritans. And I, I take seriously the idea that whatever the original conditions are, they, and those original conditions kind of redound all the way down for generations and generations. And I think Americans are still very much fixed on the category of purity and stain. I mean, John Muir, who's the first great environmentalist, was the son of a Calvinist minister. And Calvinists were concerned with purity and stain. It's not, it's not by an accident, in my view, that part of the reason why uh, uh, the environmental movement starts very strong in America is that we have in our hearts this idea of purity and stain. So my view is we're stuck with it. And, and if we don't get it done right, if we don't figure out purity and stain in a healthy way, we're gonna have it in an unhealthy way. And so I think we're in a way stuck with original sin. 
I think that's how Americans think. And if we don't think of this in uh, uh, scriptural terms, because Christ, Christ is it's said there in the, in the Gospels and certainly in the Pauline letters, that he is the lamb without spot and blemish who takes away the sins of the world. So I think Americans think that way. I don't, I think Europeans are always perplexed by us. Think about Monica, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, right? The, the Americans are fixed on how marriage has been corrupted by, by Bill Clinton and, and Monica Lewinsky. The Europeans are scratching their heads about this. I think we're stuck with these categories of purity and stain. And I, I, I don't want them to spill over into politics too much. And I know you keep pushing me to say, well, it's always spilled over. But I think if it spills over too much, then we can't have a politics of competence. Then I think we can't look at each other as, as possible bricklayers that we can form a business together. It's gonna, we're gonna start and end with, well, you're white, I'm this. Uh, and I think this is just a terrible way to go. It, well, I, you know, I do agree that identity politics is a process of scapegoating white people and eventually the entire Western world. I'm not sure that makes it a religious activity. And again, I go to scripture because the scapegoat is sort of not sacrificed, but sent away, yeah. laden, laden yeah. with the sins. And so is there other ways in which identity politics is a religious ideology? Well, let's put it this way. I think, I think um, one of the characteristics of religion is a longing for atonement. And in that sense, I think identity politics is very much about, it's a religious impulse. So I go to Europe periodically. And so America is haunted by, by the wound of slavery and, and we want atonement. We, we want to somehow be healed from this wound. The Europeans are, are, they're not haunted by slavery, but I mean, is it better or is it worse? I mean, they're haunted by colonialism. They're haunted by the First World War. They're haunted by the Second World War. And above all, the Germans are haunted by the Holocaust. And I think what happened was precisely at the moment when in America, the, the legacy of slavery, namely the Jim Crow period, appeared on our television sets. And some of you know exactly the scenes I'm talking about of little black kids being hosed down by, by the fire hoses in, uh, uh, in the South and, and you know, in my family and everywhere I know, you know, kid, people literally jumped up from their, from their, uh, their couches and screamed, no, this can't be so, right? So a kind of obliviousness to the legacy of, of slavery, the wound, the racial wound that still existed, that appears to Americans in, in the 1960s in the way that it never had. And that wound also, the, the wound of colonialism, you know, just as the colonial powers were collapsing in the, 19, in, the, in the aftermath of World War II in Europe and profound guilt about the Holocaust, just when, when guilt is reaching its apogee in the, in, in after World War II, the churches have no more language to, to think through guilt and atonement and forgiveness and repentance. All that stuff goes away. And what I'm saying is somehow we have to find atonement. And what what identity politics, the way it offers atonement is the following. It says, come unto me, all of you who are burdened with guilt. And I'll do it in the European case. Give up on your nations, which have this vast legacy of transgression. And if you renounce your nations, then I will pronounce you purified. And, and the European Union is, 
people claim that it's moving from an economic union to a political union, but I see it more as a statement of public atonement, a great European apology for the, for, for the 2000 years of nations and all the violence that it did. So I do think identity politics is very much offering atonement. So the Ibrahim Kendi acknowledge that you're a racist and then those who don't acknowledge that they're racist, those who don't acknowledge that they have privilege, well, they're the impure ones. And so you can separate yourself. You are, you are, your burden is lifted. If for example, if you put a Black Lives Matter sign in your front yard, and, and I'm very troubled. In the 1960s, you'll excuse my language, but in the 1960s, we had a phrase called sit on your ass white liberals. And my view of this is, is very much like that today as well, that people think that if they just put a Black Lives Matter sign in the front yard, th that's it. Their burden is done. And I think this is a terrible, terrible way to proceed. And I'm happy if you want at some point to talk about how I think we do need to address um, the race issue, because we do in constructive ways, not by putting signs in your front yard and saying, I'm innocent, I'm with you, I'm on the, innocent, on the side of the innocent victim. I don't think that's enough. Yeah, well, that might be a good place to, to go since you've of offered. I know I wrote an article once called, Why Progressive Right Men Step Up, Not Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is exactly right. So um, Bob Woodson, who I've mentioned before, runs something called the Woodson Center. Um, and he and I wrote uh, an op-ed in the, in the uh, Wall Street Journal, Journal on Martin Luther King Day. And what we said was, if you look at uh, Black American thought right from the beginning, you see that there are huge divisions about how to proceed. Some wanted to go back to Africa. Some wanted to, to voice loyalty to the American project, Booker T. Washington. Some wanted to be in America and yet push back, W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, and, but what's, but what united all of them was the idea that black Americans have agency. And what Bob noted, and I, you know, he and I wrote this together, but it's really Bob's idea was that the 1619 project, which I'm sure many of you know about, uh, with its claim that America is systemically racist changes things. It suggests that black agency won't work. That when you say there's a systemic problem, you're saying that the problem is so large that you can't help yourself, that your family can't help, that your friends can't help, that your neighbors can't help, that your churches can't help, and your local communities can't help. And this represents um, for Bob and, and I think for many other black conservatives, a, a new chapter in black history because it's, it's saying we give up, we don't have agency. And Bob's not prepared to do that. And so the, the 1619 Project it, it argues about whether is America, America is systemically racist. Uh, our view is, of, of course, there was a problem. And we're not going to we're not going to pretend like many conservatives did that the American founding is pure and everything's fine. That's ridiculous. But uh, but our view is uh, just because it was stained doesn't mean it's unredeemable. Because as you know, from a Christian perspective, you start from the idea that we're not stained, and and we have to work our way out of this. So Bob's view and mine. Is that, is that collective guilt will do nothing. In fact, what it will do is it'll produce racial fatigue and it's already starting to happen. Uh, the, the issue of, uh, of the fate of black America has been very much on the mind of Americans since, I don't know, pick it 2016, maybe 2020, pick it. But already you can sense a kind of fatigue and we don't want that to happen. 
So Bob's view is stop talking about collective guilt, which will drive people away. And by the way, drive them to the alt-right, because what people will say is we don't care anymore. And that's what the alt-right is doing. We, we don't care about slavery. We don't care about colonialism. We just don't care. That's what the alt-right's all about. So I don't want that to happen. And so rather than thinking in terms of collective guilt, I think what we need to do is think in terms of local responsibility. And the model that, uh, that, that Bob has been talking about for 40 years, and I think it's the right one, is to be found in, um, in the Old Testament. It's the story of Pharaoh and Joseph. So, so Joseph is the slave, but a very competent one. And Pharaoh is the one that has the resources. And so what Bob does is he'll, he'll go into a town, go into you know, the so-called inner city of Baltimore, and he'll go, he'll walk around and he'll, he'll say, he'll run into people and say, well, so who are the five most important people in your neighborhood that have their act together, that are holding this whole place together? And it'll turn out to be that, that there are these five or six people and everybody knows who they are. And so Bob goes to them and he, he says, how can I help you? What resources do you need? And Bob has a, a, a 2,400 grassroots organizers across the country who are the Josephs of the community. And Bob says, you can't have outside policymakers coming in and doing studies and pretending that they have answers to the problems within the destitute communities, black and white. Bob doesn't work with just black communities. He, he works with the least among us. And his argument, which I think is absolutely right, is that there are resources within all these communities to solve the problems of these communities. And we have to quietly and behind the scenes and without fanfare and without announcing how virtuous we are, we need to look around in our own little neighborhoods, our own little communities and ask, who are the people that are making a difference? And so, you know, help out in Little League baseball, uh, you know, give, give money for jerseys for Little League baseball teams, just to find the small ways in which we can help the, the Josephs who are the pillars of all these communities that are at risk. And that's the only way we're going to do this, because we can build trust. We can empower these people who have then looked up, looked up to in the community. This is the only way we can begin to make things better. But when you start saying systemic racism, systemic racism, you're saying there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that Blacks in the, in the, uh, in the uh, destitute regions of the cities, I hate using the term inner cities because it's a code, uh, there's nothing they can do. Only the state can help you. And, and I think we have demonstrated oh, since the Great Society program, which I initially was a great supporter of, that it's just not clear after 10, 10 to 15 trillion, depending on how you're measuring it, that we've solved these problems. So I think we have to look anew and we have to take citizen responsibility. And so, I, so I'd urge all of, our, all of the people who are listening uh, to just look around your community. I've done it. I'm not going to tell you how I've done it. I'm not interested in showing that I'm virtuous, but I have done it. And I will continue to do it to my, to my dying days. I think that's what we can and should do. I feel the same way. And one of the things that really irked me when I was, I was involved in the impeachment movement and very much wanting to, even when it was unpopular, and here are these people on the left of African, Reverend Miller, I mean, Reverend Barber even, Trump is just a symptom. Trump is just a symptom. That really um, was apologizing for Trump. We needed to hold him accountable and was stopping us from doing what we needed to do at that time. And one way that I frame it is rather than original sin looking at, but the problem of human evil, that that's what we're dealing with. 
I mean, generally. And there are other ways of looking at that. The only we're only getting identity policy. It's just one way of addressing the problem of human evil. Or and it's only because it's being promoted. But there are plenty of equally valid and important ways of addressing the problem of human evil. Yeah. So Solzhenitsyn, I mean, he's Russian, but I think one of his great insights is that the, the line between good and evil runs through everyone's heart. That is to say, it's, it's not just out there. Uh, it's in here. And maybe there are other ways of doing it, but I'll press, press back, Rich, just a bit. You know, I grew up in the Middle East. Uh, I was born in Cairo. Uh, my formative years were in the Gulf. I spoke and dreamed Arabic. Uh, and I've spent many, probably 20 to 25 years of my life in the Middle East. And when I go there, I realize there's, there's certain what are called path dependencies. Muslim culture, the Middle East, it's going to be what it's going to be. It's had a long history. And, and I think the Iraq war showed me, kind of knew it before, but it really showed me that you can't bring external categories and expect cultures who have had different categories for 2000 years to just say, sure, we want those categories. You have to work out your problems within, within the confines of what you've been given. And I think in the American context, you know, here again, I'm pushing back just a bit. I think the category of sin is the central category. And one of the great questions that people ask is why didn't Marxism take over in America and why did Freud? It's a huge question. And the reason why Marx didn't ever capture the American imagination really is because the central category in Marx is class. But the central category in Freud is guilt. And Americans have this Christian guilt. Now they tried to figure it out how to, how to, how to think it through in terms of psychology in the 20th century, Freudian psychology. Uh, but, but my point here is that American culture has these categories and it's the category of purity and stain. And, and that's why I wanna use the category of original sin because I think whether we like it or not, we're, we're all wrestling with the question of how deep sin goes. When Hillary Clinton called whatever, part of the Republican Party or whatever, the irredeemables and the deplorables, people got upset. And, you know, in a way I did too. I don't think that's the way you should talk about people. But the category that she was using, irredeemable stain, deplorables, this is, this is a purely Christian category. And so I wasn't surprised. She used the categories that were available to American political culture to do this. So I think, let's put it this way. I think Christians who understand the category would do well to see identity politics in terms of that category and then ask the question, maybe we need to put original sin back in its theological framework so that we know that we can't scapegoat another group over here that there was one divine scapegoat who took away the sins of the world. And I'll say it a second time. If you understand this, you should weep because this fantastic Christian insight, which changes history, was violated straight throughout history. And in the American context, with whites um, using blacks as scapegoats, which is why, you know, I think we need to understand why in, you know, in some portions of black culture, it is said, whitey is the devil. And it's Christians, black Christians who say this, because if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Christians claim that they understand the central insight about non-scapegoating. 
So if you're scapegoating, if you're choosing racial categories to scapegoat, you must be invaded by the devil. I mean, that's the only possible conclusion you can get. So I, I really, I, I get that. I get why that is said within the black community, because I think we're stuck with that category. And again, not all of us. I mean, there are Jews and Roman Catholics who, who aren't that way. But what I'm suggesting is that this is, and I'll put this matter bluntly, this is a Protestant problem. It's the latest version of a Protestant problem. And I think it's not that everybody in America should be Protestants, but the Protestants need to get their act together and understand that we can't think in terms of mortal scapegoating. We have to get back to the divine scapegoat. And only when that happens, I think, can American political culture be fixed because uh, you know, my father's family, for example, is not Protestant. It's Antioch Orthodox. So it's not like I've got skin in the game on this one. But I do think that Protestants have to get their act together. And I am actually talking to some pro prominent Protestant ministers, and they, they're beginning to get it, is that they have to get their act together again. So everybody, start putting up your hands if you want to ask questions. I got one more question, which it point to the divisiveness that all of this is, you know, whitey is the devil, very divisive, you know, the fact that white men, I really feel that, I really feel that um, accusation of being racist just because I disagree. So, and I know you've written a number of books about democracy. I'm wondering if you could sort of tie the current threat to democracy around the world and at home here to the rise of identity politics and the other ailments you spoke about. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell a quick story. So when I finished up my education, I didn't have a job like so many of us. And I, I was offered a job to teach, for, you know, for terrible wages for one year. And I was supposed to teach this book called Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, which some of you have heard about. And others, you know, if you haven't heard about it, everyone should own it. It's this Frenchman who came to America in the 1830s and wrote this astounding book. And I, I sat there for three and a half hours in the library and read the 11 pages of the introduction and closed the book and looked up at the ceiling and said to myself, you'll spend the rest of your life with this book. This was in 1989. And I have. And just very quickly, Tocqueville was an aristocrat and he came to America and he saw this American thing and he said, these Americans could really get it right. He said, if we do this correctly, if we, if we build a world of competence, as I call it, if we build a world through our local communities, if we, if we dare to work with our neighbors, even if they're different from us, he said, this will unleash an energy never before seen in human history. And I think at good periods in American history it has. But he, what, what he worried about most was what he called um, soft despotism or gentle tyranny. And what he worried about was that it, it, we, we wouldn't be up to the task. We would rather separate ourselves from one another, which is what identity politics does. We would rather look up to the state to take care of us. And he said, if that happened, we would have a gentle tyranny at the end of history, get this, where we would think about nothing but entertainment and want the state to step in and take care of ourselves. And we would have social distancing. And the way I say this to my students, we'd, we'd be able to download Netflix and the state, state would take care of all of our needs. We'd be able to order everything from Amazon, but we'd never need to sh shake hands with our neighbor. I mean, that's, that is what Tocqueville worried about. So you, here you have this incredible potential in democracy, which could unleash energy that has never been seen in human history. But it's only gonna work if you and I meet each other face to face. And so Tocqueville says, 
one of my favorite passages, feelings and ideas are renewed, the heart enlarged, the mind expanded only by the reciprocal action of men one upon another. And another one, um, a tyrant will forgive citizens for not loving him, provided they do not love each other. So the best guarantee of tyranny is that you and I are separated, that we hate each other, we distrust each other. And that's my worry about identity politics is that it takes a very real wound, which is the slavery wound, make no mistake about it. Uh, but, but then what it does is it instead of trying to heal the wound, it keeps pouring salt in the wound and says only a growing state can take care of you. And, but that was Tocqueville's worry, that the growing state would lead to greater and greater isolation. And while our needs would be taken care of, in point of fact, we'd be lonely and alone. And by the way, we would suffer from bipolarity. He thought that we would have massive manic depression, which couldn't be solved by chemicals unless we work together and build a world with our neighbors. So we would oscillate between these incredible highs and these incredible lows. Well, I think that has happened. Uh, so all, his predictions in the 1830s were, were frighteningly accurate. And so I, I'm always looking around for threats to this exquisite vision of you and I building a world together, even if we don't get along. Tough. Yeah. We're, we're still neighbors. Let's work this out. And, and what he said was, if you work things out and if you start working with people, you'll realize that your, your neighbor isn't as horrible as you thought. Because it's only when we're lonely and polarized and, and isolated that we start imagining how demonic the other person is. And then when you have to work with the person, you, at the end of the day, you go home and you think, well, gosh, they're not as bad as I thought. But, but only when you're working with somebody to solve a real problem, not sitting down and having interracial reconciliation groups, or in my case, the Middle East, interreligious understanding dialogue. Forget all that. We have to literally build a world together. And that, 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 that is our greatest hope. But everything we're doing now is pulling that apart. And I saw one comment in the chat. Yeah, it sounds like COVID. It's exactly it. It's exactly it. I went to a, an event yesterday by civic genius. And there's a lot of these groups are working to bring people with divergent views together and to bridge that divide. Yeah. And this group was having us work to solve a problem. Um, and so, um, and I also have Tocqueville's book right over here on my, yeah. on my shelf. And I think he started a book study on it at it's some time. Yeah. yeah. So, so another group, by the way, is John Wood's Better Angels. Um, yes. He's a wonderful young man. Uh, and it, he doesn't solve problems. He doesn't try to solve problems. But what he does is he asks people in, in the you know, multi-hour gathering to tell everyone else their life story. And sometimes if you hear a person's life story, not just what they believe, right, whether they believe in Trump or hate, that's not relevant. What we have to do is we have to see how people come to believe what they believe so that you see that there's a person behind whatever they believe. So we have to have all of these projects, but I think mostly where the responsibility lies is you and me. And we have to do everything we can just to, to reach out to our neighbors uh, and, uh, and discover that, there's, that who they are and who we are is exce exceeds our imagination of who we, who we are and who they are only, by, only when we act and discover that. So let's go to the questions. Um, Brittany, uh, here, go ahead and unmute there. Oops, that's the unmute again, sorry. There you go. Hey. Hi. Um, hi. Oh, my, oh my God, oh my gosh, Josh. 
Um, but, um, first I want to say, uh, what a great statement about our democracy. And you mentioned about um, religion and and democracy. What what you, what you what you what you just mentioned. Um, I am a I am a Christian. I'm a I'm a Christian and and I'm a Democrat. And when I spread the word, I, I will just like spread the word out and tell them to vote for President Joe Biden. There. Uh, some of the Christian friends uh, that are against it because they, they're because they're Trump supporters. Some of the Christian friends that 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 told me that that President Joe Biden killed the, the babies. I mean, I mean that's not true. That's so not true. Did and he, then, he, wait, some of people are saying that he does kill babies. Yes. Yes, they say that. Some of the Christians say that that Donald Trump is standing standing with Israel, the nations of Israel. I mean, oh, I'm like, oh crap. That's totally not true. Totally, totally, totally not true. Thank you, Brittany. So so there's a couple of things I would say about these. So the the Israel question and the abortion question are, are so supercharged. And the kind of thing I'm advocating is, sure, let's all go out and vote for president. But I'm, I'm saying that the way in which we can address these issues best is, is at our local level. I mean, this is actually Tocqueville's great message. And what he worried about was that as this country grew older, we would be less and less able or interested to reach out to our neighbors to solve problems. And we'd look up only to the powerful state and, and our politics would become incredibly polarized over issues like abortion in Israel. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to have those conversations, but I don't think we're gonna solve the agony of America over those particular issues. I truly believe that right. what we're looking for, what we need to find is probably right, right around right around in our neighborhoods, if we would just dare to look, just very quickly, just on this matter. So I, I mentioned I'm, my wife and I are fixing up this very old house and it's taken us two years. And I'm looking for a mill to cut wood. And I'm, I'm looking in, you know, on Google, and I'm finding mills a couple hundred miles away. And I'm thinking, well, how am I going to do that? And then I start driving mm-hmm. around and right down the street is a guy with his own sawmill in his backyard and he's cutting wood and I go up and I talk to him and I make a friend of him. And it just reminds me that maybe instead of looking up and far away to work through our problems, maybe what we need is right around the corner. And I think the Christian category of the neighbor is really, mm-hmm. really important. I mean, the central category of the, of, for Christianity is the neighbor and the neighbor's not exactly like you. And so my view of this is let's reach out to our neighbors, recognize they're different, uh, approach them with charity. And why don't we see what happens for a while? Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Um, Let's go to Professor Dowd now, if we can. Go ahead, Professor. Okay. Uh, um, Hello. Now, I have two rather complex questions here, and I don't want to hog the time. So you can 
respond to both or either or neither as you please. Okay, okay so <clears throat> I guess I'll just read what I post in the chat. Uh, Rich described Josh as someone who left the left partly over identity politics, but the political values that Josh, that Josh affirmed, opposition to war, opposition to free market ideology, seem solidly leftist. The right wing may li label identity, liberal identity politics as leftist, but if you poke around in the more interesting, interesting corners of the internet, uh, you'll find that some of the people most hostile to, quote, wokeness, unquote, hold economic views that are much farther to the left than those of the Democratic Party. Indeed, some of them argue that it's a misnomer to call identity politics leftist and rail against identity politics as a, quote, corporate, unquote, and, quote, neoliberal, unquote, attempt to divert attention from genuine, quote, leftist, unquote, values, which they basically identify with old school Marxism. Yeah. I don't know whether I agree with that view, but if we're saying that Rich, that, that, sorry, that Josh has left the left, and then how exactly are we defining the left here? Well, let me, let me take, I don't know how I can define the left here, but let me, exp I think I'm agreeing with what you're saying. So one of the, one of the things I'm deeply troubled by, and by the way, it's just, uh, Marxists would say this, but, but that doesn't mean I'm a Marxist on this one. But so I am deeply troubled by woke capitalism because I think what happens mm. is you get corporations which are ridiculously large and should never be this large getting cover by, uh, by, by, by holding up uh, woke causes, so to speak. So mm. uh, uh, BlackRock, BlackRock owns, it's basically a financial management firm. Some of you know this. When I wrote about them in the book, they had $7 trillion under management. Now they have $10 trillion under management. It's the largest corporation in the world. Now, if we were a Marxist, or in my view, if we were a good old fashioned liberal like Adam Smith, you would be really nervous about this. But the problem is they're not held accountable because they have duped us all by saying, no, no, I, I support Black Lives Matter and, and pick your favorite causes of the left. And if they do that, they're given a pass. And I find this despicable. Uh, so, so my view is that, no, you don't get a pass because you have, quote, the right political positions. And in that sense, you know, I'm aligned with Marx on this because Marx was deeply suspicious of corporate power. My view is that one of the largest problems in America is what's called uh, crony capitalism, where you have an alignment uh, between corporate power and, and government regulators and a revolving door between government bureaucracies and, and large corporations. And so you get regulatory capture. The regulations are written by the largest corporations, which then drive out the small businesses. This is a profound rot in our society and we must fight it. And I, I mentioned at the outset <clears throat> that free market conservatives were, were singing the praises of capitalism, but they were not sufficiently attentive to the problem of regulatory capture. Some of them were, but, but for the most part, they haven't been. They've been blindly singing the praises of, of corporations and, and Wall Street, this is Reagan. But we, are, we have now reached a, a moment of reckoning. And my view is uh, that, that we have to have a good hard look at these companies. And I don't care what, whether they have my politics or not, that doesn't give them a pass for being simply too big. We have to return to the middle class, a middle class commercial republic, which means we do everything we can to support small businesses. Please ask your next question, Joseph. We have time for it. Okay, thank you. I, I tend to agree with the view that identity politics drives from Christianity. Um, I, 
I, you probably uh, at least are somewhat familiar with Rene Girard. Right? Yes. He, he, yeah. he talks about that, yes. Yeah. Um, but Girard doesn't say that the Western tradition viewed Christ as the only innocent victim until you know, present-day identity politics messed everything up. As I understand it, Girard's theory is that the whole progressive tendency in Western history, you know, the evolution toward democracy, the civil rights movement, the workers' rights movement, et cetera, is driven by Christian-inspired sympathy for seemingly innocent victims and corresponding hostility toward, you know, the rulers of this age, right? And while Augustine and Calvin may say that all people are equally fallen and stained with no real innocent victims, there are plenty of biblical passages that condemn the rich for oppressing the seemingly innocent poor. So like in, in the Gospel of Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, when Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor for theirs is the for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry. And he, then he turns around and he says, woe to you who are rich, right? Uh, woe to you who are full, right? And uh, so anyway, so what do you think of the idea that the application, that applying the innocent victim category to people other than Christ, right, whether we're talking about Black people or whatever, that applying that category to ordinary people has, in some cases, been a force for progress? Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, so I think part of the reason why we have pluralism uh, in, in America, on a good day, not a bad day, but America's really committed to pluralism is precisely because we've taken this idea of the innocent victim and, and been able to extend it. And I'm not sure what the, the verb is, but to extend it so that it's not just this vertical dimension, but that it's also the horizontal dimension outward. So I think what Girard is saying is that that what the great insight of Christianity is the visibility of the innocent victim, that it elevates it. And I'm, make no mistake about it, I'm all for increasing visibility, but one of the complications I see happening, and this is gonna be fairly controversial, but let me just lay this out for a minute, is that the, um, and I, because I don't know how to resolve it, okay? You know, the argument that's made now is that Black civil rights goes to women's rights, goes to gay rights, goes to transgender rights. And one of the problems here is that if you're working within the confines of identity politics, you get this, I think, very convoluted moral position that somehow if you're, you're prepared to be a pluralist and say gay marriage is fine, uh, transgenderism is fine, but... And here's the liberal part of me. But, you, but people who don't believe in that can't be, called, can't be called heteronormative. They can't be guilty of the thought crime. To put it in slightly different terms, a liberal believes that there's a rule and then there's exceptions to the rule. And, and I'm a liberal. I think what happens under identity politics when you extend the idea of the innocent victim fully, which is your question, you, you don't get that there's a rule and there's exceptions to the rule, you get that the exception is the rule. That is to say, you can no longer, you, you can't believe in your own life and for your children's life that a man is a man is a woman, woman, you're guilty of a thought crime. Now, a liberal can say, no, I believe that, but I'm fully prepared to live in a society where not everybody believes that. And that's my position, which is why 
I'm, I'm not a member of the left anymore. Do I believe that abortion should be safe and legal? Absolutely. But I also worry that 40 to 50 million abortions is, is a lot. Do I believe uh, that, that gay marriage should be legal? I do. But I think we also have to, to actually study it and see what effects it has on children. Again, I voted for it in the state of Maryland, the only opportunity I had to vote for it. Uh, do I believe that affirmative action um, is a good thing? Yeah, but I think after X number of years, we, there are reasons to, to raise questions about this. So my view is we should have pluralist positions. The society has to bet on the pack, but we also, to be a liberal society, we have to make room for all sorts of outsiders. So my concern, let me come right back to this, to identity politics now, is that you know, under the, in the current vernacular of the democratic left, if you're not fully on board with transgenderism, you're guilty of heteronormativity and being cisgender. The implication of this is really quite staggering for black America because 80% of black Americans are, are uh, believe that a man is a man, is a woman is a woman and believe the church is necessary for their salvation. But if, but if that idea of family is now uh, somehow transgressive, and if that idea of a church is somehow transgressive, you've completely inverted what you began with, because we began with the view that Black America needs to be supported. And Martin Luther King was very clear that the family and the church, as it's traditionally understood, was, um, was the pillar of Black America. So you get to this position when you keep going farther and farther out with greater and greater visibility of smaller and smaller populations, you end up undermining the first group. And I think you can't, you can't do that. Uh, and a, a liberal wouldn't do that. A liberal would say, uh, for the most part, men, people believe that men are women and men are men and women are women, and there can be exceptions. And I'm perfectly prepared to do that. But I'm not prepared to live with the identity politics left that wants to say somehow I'm guilty of a thought crime because I don't, because I don't believe that the exception is the rule. So I, I worry about extending the idea of the innocent victim and carry out indefinitely and you end up then attacking the first innocent victim. So it's not by accident that Andrew Sullivan, a gay conservative, uh, Martina Navratilova, the tennis player and JK Rowling have come, come out against, uh, against the transgender movement because their position is Andrew Sullivan, gay man, yes? Uh, men and men or women or women, it's just he happens to prefer men. It's just when you keep extending this out, you actually end up running into problems. And I think that's, that's part of the reason why the identity politics left is on the verge of exploding or imploding rather. The, the, the only thing that holds the whole thing together now, this coalition, which is not a coalition anymore. Uh, many gay conservatives are very upset with the idea of the transgender movement, as are many black Americans. The only thing that holds us together is the idea that all of these groups, you know, people of color, people with different sexual orientation, are united in opposition to one group, the white heterosexual male. This destroys the possibility of real conversation. So, so long-winded answer. So yes, I think it's, it's inevitable and to some extent a good thing that this theological category be extended into politics because it makes visible people who heretofore have been invisible. That is a good thing, that's pluralism. But if you keep going down this road, you end up with very perverse consequences, especially for black America. And that is my argument in the book, is that identity politics, which is in some ways built upon the wound of slavery in America, ends up harming black America. That's why I think we have to ultimately oppose it.
I'm a liberal too, but by that I mean <clears throat> that I defend the Constitution, I believe in democracy, I fight for civil and human rights, and I believe that the, and this is where I think something is relevant here, is that the individual as the basic social unit of society is classical liberalism. And I think that's where, in my mind, some of this identity politics gets off track in that, because yeah. we're not looking at people as individuals. Yeah, I think this is the problem. So uh, I'll tell you a story. I, I teach in the Middle East, as I said, and then two years ago when I was last there before COVID, I had this covered woman come in um, in an abaya. And she spoke to me in very broken English. She said, Professor Mitchell, I won't imitate her accent. She said, Professor Mitchell, why are, why are my left-wing teachers telling me I have an identity? I thought I was a person. And if I'm not a person, I'm a Muslim. Why do I have to have an identity? The problem with the term identity is that unless you're playing the game, you're invisible, right? Unless you somehow announce that you're an innocent victim, you don't have a right to speak. And I think that's part of the reason why there's a kind of um, hysteria is too strong a word, an urgency that people feel to somehow make up an identity that's not conventional. Because the only way you count is if you're on the outskirts. I don't think you can build a society that way. Now, again, I want a pluralistic society and I'm fully prepared to accept a range of things that many of my conservative colleagues would not, would not extend. But I think identity politics is ultimately turning us away from the fact that, to your point, Rich, we're individual persons, but let me add, we're individual persons in a community that were formed in and through our relations with our immediate community. This is the mediating institutions idea. Um, and, and to think of ourselves as simply bearers of identity is really destructive. So I'll just give you an, a living example because I think that's the only way we can think these things through. So if I were to show up at a job and say, well, the precondition for you, for me even being around here and, and working with you is that you can accept my identity, that's never gonna work. I think what happens is we come to these different gatherings and we have some provisional idea about who we are. So I'm a Lebanese American, fine. Uh, but, but that gets changed when and altered in constructive ways, I think, when we have to deal with other people. And we discover, as I said earlier, that, well, okay, fine, I'm a Lebanese American, but that's really not gonna be helpful in me laying bricks. Uh, and, and I think we have to be able to, to wrestle with the question of who we are but also know that it's an, it's an open question that gets answered every time we're engaging with real people. And the problem of identity politics is that it sets up a barrier and says, I won't engage you unless you recognize me as this. And the only, I think, think of through this Tocqueville in, in Tocqueville's terms, the only way you can even do this, the only way you can pretend that you can get along with, you can make a declaration of an identity and that's all you need to do. The only way you can do this is you've got a very powerful state that is taking care of you every single day. Then you don't need your neighbor. Then you can practice social distancing and make any declaration you want about your identity. I'm perfectly fine that people begin with a provisional understanding of who they are. That's what we do. But to make that the end point, only if you have a powerful state, only when we don't need our neighbors, can you even get to that point. And that's exactly what's happened is we have this we have a very powerful state, which is promising to take care of everybody. And the state has a powerful vested interest in inventing all these different identities that can protect 
because the state has no interest in you and I building the world together. It has an interest in making itself larger and larger and larger. So that's the problem. And identity politics feeds that longing. So thank you very much. Donna, I know you had your hand up. I wasn't ignoring you. If you wanted to speak, you can go ahead and unmute. Yeah, I just have a really quick question, which is for Joshua. What are your thoughts on the Poor People's Campaign? Say more about that. Well, um, Dr. Reverend Barbara addresses low-wage earners and people under the poverty level. And I think his ultimate aim is to gather the political force of all those people, particularly relative to voting, people who can you know, promote and advocate to get them out of this state of really economic inequality. Yeah. So one of my uh, one of my concerns with the free market types on the right is that they're they're very quick to talk about how markets free markets are great. And as a general rule, I think it's incontrovertible that it's lifted billions of people out of poverty, but it's not enough. Um, there's always going to be people who fall through. Um, there's always going to be needs that the market can't address. And I think what we've lost sight of, this is the first part of my answer to your question. What we've lost sight of is that charity and the churches need to play an important role in, in helping the poor. But because, here's the second part, but because international commerce and let's call it global capitalism um, is so disruptive. Um, it's also the case that the state has to step in or groups have to step in um, on behalf of the poor periodically. Um, my concern is not that groups, that the state doesn't step in or that we don't organize them. My concern is that they become then, if they become permanently dependent on these organizations, that's a problem. The goal in my view of, of any sort of economic policy should be to help the middle class stay in the middle class and to help the poor um, emerge from a condition of penury so that they can join the middle class and have stable homes in stable neighborhoods uh, with their kids having a better prospect for the future. Will that require periodically the state stepping in? Will it require periodically individuals and groups stepping in? Yeah, we have, my view is that any society that is, that is not paying attention to the social consequences of its policies for the least among us, this biblical phrase, um, is not doing a particularly good job. And so we have to always be thinking about the least among us. Thank you, everyone. Remember our programs um, coming up to our event on the January 6th special committee hearing, watch party and speak out. Also remember, we're going to be having smart politics with us in June. And I want to thank everybody for coming. I want to thank <clears throat> Joshua for coming leading a great presentation. I know that we don't agree on, on everything and certainly don't agree on a lot of things and many of us disagree, but that's what the discussion is about. That's what we need to do. If we're gonna bring this country back together, <clears throat> we're gonna to need to build up a middle because right now we have an inverted bell curve. And okay. yeah, and so we're gonna to need to bring that up. And we, that means we're going to need to listen to what other people have to say, disagree with them, but actually understand them rather than just stereotypes or profiling them or 
coming up with labels that demonize them. Rich, thank you very much for having me. These are the kinds of conversations we all need to have, I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody.